brother is watching you. Oh. <laughs> Listeners, you are warned. This program is not to be listened to. Welcome to 1984 Today, your one-stop shop for all things dystopian. I'm your host, Mike Friedman. Forgive the occasional rasping of my voice, but I'm feeling a little hoarse right now. Don't worry, it's consensual. Our guest today is C.J. Hopkins, an award-winning playwright, novelist, and political satirist and commentator. His work has been produced internationally, and his political writing has been published widely by outlets including Consent Factory, Zero Hedge, Off Guardian, and Dissident Voice. He's also the author of a dystopian novel called Zone 23, which I hope we also have time to discuss. CJ, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. So most currently, in terms of what's been going on with you, um, you've written a book about, not so much about, but maybe encompassing your view and research and experience of the pandemic period. And the aftermath of that book has caused some legal problems for you where you live in Germany. Is that correct? Mm, that's right. It's, it's, it's actually not the book per se that's caused the problems, um, but the cover art of the book. Um, the book, just to be clear, is a collection of my essays, um, uh, my columns that I, uh, that I write regularly and, and publish on the Consent Factory and on my Substack. And uh, every couple of years, I, I collect what I think are the, the best or most important of those, and, and I publish them as a, as a collection. And that's what this book is uh, called The Rise of the New Normal Reich, and it's my essays from 2020 to 2021. Um, the cover of the book, my brilliant uh, uh, cover artist, Anthony Freda, and I, um, what we decided to do was uh, basically steal the design from William Shirer's uh, internationally famous book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. <clears throat> and there are several covers, but uh, maybe the most famous one is the one that we stole, uh, which is all black and the title is in red lettering. And then beneath the title, there's a white circle with a swastika in it. This is the cover of the Shirer book. And what we did is, is basically copied that, and we covered up the white swastika with one of the medical masks that everybody was forced to wear um, for over two years. Um, and uh, so that's the cover art of the book. Uh, what, uh, what is at issue in my case here in Germany is uh, uh, two tweets that included that cover art. Um, and I'll tell you the story uh, j- just as quickly as I can. In uh, June, uh, got a letter from the Berlin state prosecutor uh, informing me that I was under criminal investigation uh, for two tweets that I published in, in 2022. Uh, so that was rather alarming. I went out and got a lawyer. The lawyer wrote to the Berlin state prosecutor and first thing just asked, you know, what are the tweets? Because they, they didn't tell us. Um, uh, so the prosecutor sent the uh, copies of the tweets along, and it turned out it was two tweets that I had written in German, um, basically satirizing, challenging the uh, mask mandates. <clears throat> and the first one, uh, uh, basically, it was the cover art from the book. And, and then I uh, uh, said, I wrote in German, uh, you know, the masks are uh, ideological uh, conformity symbols. 
you know, that's, that's what they are. Stop pretending that they're anything else or get used to wearing them. Um, and the second tweet uh, was I simply subtweeted uh, uh, Karl Lauterbach, the uh, uh, health minister of Germany. He was quoted in an article in a German uh, newspaper uh, saying that the masks always send out a signal. Um, and I thought, perfectly, yeah, perfect. That's, that's exactly my point, Karl. Um, so I subtweeted that and, and stuck the cover art on it. And uh, so those are my two tweets. Uh, uh, for these two tweets, I'm accused uh, and have been found guilty already, really, of, uh, uh, and I'll try to remember the, the exact quote from the German um, uh, law. It's, uh, I'm accused of disseminating propaganda, the content of which is intended to further the aims of a former national socialist organization. Uh, end quote. Uh, so basically supporting the Nazis is, is what I've been accused of. Um, anyway, my, my lawyer responded to the charges uh, in writing, and the next thing uh, we knew, we got um, a Strafbefehl, which in English is... That sounds in, serious. Yeah, it just sounds really serious in German, and it is. It's, it's the order of punishment, basically. Um, and so this is informing me that, that, that I'm a hate criminal and that I have been fined 3,600 euro or I can spend 60 days in jail. Um, uh, so that uh, was in August, I believe, when we got that. Um, and uh, 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 so next is a trial. We've just received a trial date and uh, uh, we, there'll, there'll be a trial in late January and we'll go before uh, the court and basically make the same arguments that my lawyer has already made in writing. And uh, we'll see where it goes from there. In the meantime, the, uh, the Berlin State Prosecutor opened another investigation of me uh, because I published a column about the original investigation of me in which I included screenshots of the tweets that the prosecutor had sent me. Uh, so they opened a separate investigation of me for publishing the tweets again on my Substack. <laughs> now this this investigation has been suspended. Yeah, for the meantime, it can be reopened whenever they want. Um, but this this is this investigation has been suspended uh, with the rationale that that when I am punished for my original uh, alleged crimes, that this punishment will suffice to punish me for publishing them again. Uh, so that's, that's basically the story and, and where things stand. For those of us, thankfully like myself, who perhaps have a slightly different idea of how due process works, is it regular in Germany that the procedure is inform the accused that they've been accused, inform them that they've been found guilty and what the penalty is, and then have the trial? That seems a little backwards, no? To, to me as well. But apparently for uh, charges of this nature, it is standard. That's, uh, that's what I've learned. Um, uh, it, it, I, it may be different if, it, you know, if it's a, a, you know, a violent felony crime or something like this. Um, but apparently for, for charges of this nature, this is the process in Germany. It doesn't help dispel the common picture of Germany as a place without a sense of humor that what 
obviously, or at least I say obviously to me, is intended as an ironic usage of a symbol, that you should be accused of furthering the aims of the organization behind that symbol when in fact you are using that symbol to compare present policy to the behavior of that very negative association and institution and party and so on. No? Uh, yes, I, I've made this point, uh, you know, other journalists have made this point, Matt, Matt Taibbi made this point in a piece that he wrote about it and said something along the lines of, you know, no amount of drugs could possibly lead a person to think that, you know, Hopkins is in any way supporting the Nazis. You know, Mike, I, I, I have a 30-year, you know, track record as an author, as a playwright, as, uh, you know, as a, you know, lately as a novelist and, you know, as a columnist or political satirist. Um, you know, my work is all over the internet. It, it, it take about two minutes uh, for anyone to you know, just do a quick search and 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 discover what who I am and what I do and what my character is and and what my sympathies are, what my political sympathies are. The uh, the the charges are are just absurd on their face. Uh, there's there's I I kind of look forward to hearing. Uh, the judge or the German authorities or the prosecutor or whoever, I, I'm not sure how this trial is going to work, uh, but part of me kind of looks forward to hearing them try to justify these charges uh, because they're, they're ridiculous. They're absolutely ridiculous, and especially because the, from the sounds of the way you describe them, the very nature of the alleged crime is based entirely on intent. So it's not about fact right disseminating something in support of something is reading your intention is furthering the aims of the thing that you're disseminating the symbolism of and how can they argue when it's so clear like you say that it's the exact opposite yeah well they have to um because and a lot of people don't understand this in the uh, english-speaking world there's uh uh uh, misperception among a lot of people, and they think, you know, okay, swastikas, you can't use swastikas at all in Germany, they're banned, you can't do anything like that. Um, and it's not true. Of course, uh, you know, swastikas are banned, it's Germany, uh, you know, uh, this is, this is, this is where the Nazis, history there. <laughs> this is where the Nazis happened. Of course, of course, they don't want Nazis parading around with Nazi flags and swastikas. And what have you, and and I, you know, I have to say, although I'm a, a generally a free speech absolutist, I understand that law, and and I actually agree with it. I don't I don't want Nazis, neo Nazis, parading around in Germany with swastikas either. Um, so I understand the law. Written into the law, of course, are numerous exceptions uh, to the ban on swastikas. Uh, I mean, you know, you couldn't show Quentin Tarantino's films here if there weren't, uh, you know, these exceptions written in. You couldn't give lectures. You couldn't address the history of Nazi Germany if, if you couldn't if you, publish books about it historically, it, right? It, it, exactly, and and there are many, many exceptions written into the law. Um, the one that applies to me uh, very clearly is one of the exceptions to the use of swastikas is for people who are countering anti-constitutional activity is the language in a, that's written in hmm. the exception, which of course is exactly what I was doing. Um, I was, I was comparing, 
what I see as a new uh, emerging form of totalitarianism, not just in Germany, but throughout the West. I was comparing this new emerging form of totalitarianism to a historical form of totalitarianism, i.e. Nazi Germany. And I was doing that because it's entirely appropriate. It's the best analogy. Um, you know, some people have uh, you know, objected and said, well, why don't you compare it to Stalinism? You know, I said, well, because it's really not the right analogy. <laughs> you know, uh, what happened you know, in the Soviet Union happened uh, following a revolution where <laughs> the aristocracy was wiped out and it, it, it really doesn't track. Whereas when you look at the gradual emergence of Nazism in Germany in the 20s and 30s and the, the incremental way that this totalitarian system evolved and eventually took over and took hold of, of the society and the country, that is exactly the analogy uh, that I tracked and documented uh, with citations uh, in my collection of essays in the book that I was talking about. And in the book, I, you know, and in, in my columns, I've gone to great lengths to make the point that it's not a return of Nazism. That's not what this is. It's a new form of totalitarianism. There are similarities and there are differences. The similarities need to be noted and the differences need to be explored. Um, and, and we need to try to understand them. Um, anyway, so yes, I was absolutely comparing what I see as an emerging form of totalitarianism to a historical form of totalitarianism. And in my mind, and I think in the mind of anyone with any integrity, that qualifies as countering anti-constitutional activity. So yeah, they have to, they, they, they have to try to twist it into something that it is obviously not in order to bring the charges. Um, you know, it, it, I, I've talked to a lot of people about this, Mike, and I, I, I'm at the point where I just, you know, I want to stop beating around the bush. It's, there's not a misunderstanding. There's not a legal issue here. Um, you know, this is a crackdown on dissent. Uh, basically, uh, what's happening is authorities, not just in Germany, it's happening all over the West, um, are picking out certain people and they're making examples of us. Mm. Um, and that's and that's what's happening. There's there's no confusion. The law is clear. The you know the uh, it, it's not a legal argument um, is what I'm trying to say. This is a crackdown on dissent. And of course, optically, it is ipso facto that the reaction from the state to the criticism you were putting forward was exactly the type of activity that would happen if the state was behaving in exactly the way you were saying it was. And that itself, I mean, obviously it's a Pyrrhic victory. You wouldn't want to be right and be on the receiving end of that type of lawfare, as they call it these days. But how does it feel to, in a way, be proven right a priori simply by the response to your work, or rather, not even your work, but to you talking about your work in the context of the country you live in? Uh, it's kind of cold comfort, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, my, I mean, you know, I, I, I knew I was uh, right in the first place. I didn't, I didn't need to be prosecuted. Uh, uh, to, you didn't uh, need them to prove it. Yeah, I, I didn't need them to, to prove it. I, I, I said from the beginning of this, 
that I'm going to I'm going to fight these charges. I'm going to fight them in in court. Um, the odds are that uh, you know the judge will uphold the order of punishment in January when we go in, and it will be the beginning of a long appeals process, mm-hmm. which I intend to pursue to the end. And the reason that I intend to do that is is just what you mentioned. I want to shine as much light as I possibly can on what this state and other states, other governments and other authorities are doing, the way that the law is being instrumentalized to crack down on dissent. I could have, you know, back in in August, I could have simply accepted the Strafbefehl, paid the fine, and and it would all be over. The reason reason that I'm pursuing this and that I refuse to accept the charges is is, it's not really just because of my case, um, but it's because of this widespread crackdown on dissent that Mm. is happening in countries throughout the West. I know that a lot of people who don't pay attention to this stuff uh, may not be aware of it, Uh, but if you dig into it, you will find cases like this happening throughout the West, and I want to shine as much light on it as possible. And it obviously speaks to how closely held your feelings are about this, that obviously, as you say, in August, I'm sure, even with some basic crowdfunding, you would have had enough supporters who would have chipped in and paid the fine for you if you were willing to put it to bed. But of course, then, as you say, there's a long line of people behind you who either have or might in the future say something that falls under that umbrella, and that would be doing no favors to them. Yeah, what it, what I'm really trying to shine uh, light on. I mean, what, what I've uh, it's it's in the introductory essay of my book. It's it's woven throughout all the all of the essays in the book and most of my columns. I tend to repeat myself. Um, what I've been uh, what I've been trying to to explicate <laughs> and emphasize uh, for a number of years now. Is, is is that what we're experiencing, and, and we're still experiencing it. Um, I describe 2020 and 2021 as the shock and awe phase of it. <laughs> um, but what, what we're experiencing, we, 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 live, we live in a, this is where it gets all complicated. We live in a new world that most of us really don't have our heads around yet. Um, and we entered that new world, you know, somewhere around the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, '89, early '90s. Um, we became a, a world that is dominated uh, by a single ideological system, and people argue with me all the time about what that system is called or what it should be called and what have you. It's global capitalism. Okay, um, the last real ideological struggle ended. Uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, and we became one big global capitalist world. Um, when, when one single system occupies an entire territory, um, and it doesn't have an outside adversary anymore, that, that system has really nothing else to do other than conduct a clear and hold operation. It's a military term. When a, when, a, when a military conquers a country and they, they control the territory um, and the, you know, the fighting is over, the shock and awe is over, 
well, it's time to do a clear and hold up. And what that means is you go throughout the territory, you identify little pockets of internal resistance, and you try to wipe those pockets of internal resistance out. And at the same time, you try to establish ideological uniformity with your new official ideology, your new official narratives throughout your occupied territory. That's basically what I see happening and what has been happening over the past 30-something years. Okay, and I've been tracking it since long before the, uh, uh, the, the COVID years. Um, the, the war on terror was a huge step forward in the evolution of this process. And the COVID years, uh, 2020, 2022, uh, were another huge step forward uh, in this uh, process. Uh, what's, what's happening right now, and again, a lot of people aren't aware of it, uh, but there is, there is a, a uh, it's, I don't know if it's throughout the world, but it's definitely throughout the West, a, a widespread crackdown on dissent taking place. People can look up the Digital Services Act in the European Union. They can look up, uh, you can help me, maybe I forgot what the British... Uh, the Online uh, Safety Bill, I think it's The called. Online Safety uh, Bill, the, the authoritarian legislation that has just been rammed through in Ireland. Um, mm. This, These, these, these laws or, or acts, uh, um, and, it, and it's not just them, they're being rammed through. Infrastructure is being implemented throughout the West yeah, to mm. suppress dissent, to censor dissent, to crack down on dissent. Um, for those of us who are paying close attention to this, you know, these, are, these are classic hallmarks of an evolving totalitarian system. And again, I'll stress it for people who freak out when I say that, you know, it's not a repeat of Nazi Germany. It's not a repeat of Stalinist uh, Soviet Union. It is a different new form. Nonetheless, all of the hallmarks are there. All of the hallmarks are there. What I'm trying to draw attention to, much, much more than just my individual case, is this development, uh, mm. Mike, because it's it's... It's happening. People don't realize that it's happening. Um, they go on. I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but you know, most people will just go onto the internet and they want to look something up, and they pull up Google and they look at an article on Google. And you know, okay, sure, if you're you know researching uh, you know iguanas in the Galapagos Islands or something, you know, fine. Google might 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 be a perfectly legitimate. I mean, you know, Wikipedia is what I meant. Wikipedia might be a perfectly legitimate source, you know, for information on on those iguanas. But if you're if you're looking up anything political whatsoever, um, you know, this information has been curated and tailored and uh, censored, and what you're reading is what the, the power structure in our world wants you to read. And this is just one more example. It goes on and on. Well, it, it, in a way, the, that last point you made, what it makes me think of is maybe 50 years ago, you go to a library and you'd look for a reference book to look through it for something that covered whatever you were researching. And in much the same way that books are published through a certain process that has a winnowing effect. There's a gatekeeping 
system in place. By the time a book is on the shelf of a library or a bookstore, it's been through enough hands and across enough desks that, by and large, with the exception of vanity and self-publishing, it's going to be something someone's willing for you to read, not something they definitely don't want you to read. And in a way, the internet got ahead of that system, and what we're seeing perhaps is the system catching up through a combination of legal means and also marketing, because a lot of this has to do with the way the necessity for the control of what we see and hear is pitched. It's for our safety. It's to prevent these crazy theories from destabilizing society. For, for example, for your sake, obviously, I hear you when you say global capitalism, just to be clear for our listeners and God forbid any German prosecutors who are trying to find something they can use out of context, I'm reasonably confident looking at your face while we're discussing this, when you say global capitalism, you don't mean Jews. <laughs> and just and just just the fact that you have to say that Exactly, right? Is 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 proof of where we are. You know, what does yeah. What does, what does, it's, it's really, it's really funny, Mike. I was in the streets in New York in uh, 2002, I think it was, um, you know, protesting with the anarchists who ended up uh, evolving into the Occupy movement after I had left the States and who came out of Seattle and all of the protests against uh, globalization. The WTO protests, the Mayday Absolutely. protests, that kind of thing. Sure. And, and I was protesting the, uh, you know, the WEF had a big uh, uh, conference in New York. I think it was in 2002. Um, and so that's, that's where I came from, was <laughs> from, from the left, you know, protesting back when, back when we were all protesting globalization. And uh, at some point during the last 20 years, you know, that has been twisted into, oh, my God, if anyone, you know, mentions globalization, oh, no, that's a dog whistle, you know, yeah, for exactly. talking about the, you know, the Jews. And uh, it's the, 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 mad, the madness of it is insane. Again, you know, well, it's the same way that a vote can be described as a threat to democracy now with no well, sense of irony. Well, sure. And, and, and also with, uh, you pointed this out in regard uh, to the charges. Um, you know, what I, uh, what, what I always find bizarre is I talk about global capitalism and, you know, and someone says, do you mean, are you really, you know, he's talking about the Jews. And, and, and I say to myself, what kind of a mind would make that association? Mm. You know, it's, it's what kind of a mind, you know, would equate uh, uh, you know the 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 global power structure that we live under with Jews. It's an inherent leap, right? It's an inherently biased leap. It's something that well, even assuming it, other people would make that inference is assuming a level of prejudice in them, right? Well, it is. It is an anti-Semitic leap. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's just the the idea the idea that 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 speaking about you know a a, a global ideological power system and a global economic system is somehow, you know, connected to the Jews is, is, it's just madness. And, and on your use of the word totalitarian, one of the, one of the books I've read as part of the process of, of, uh, this podcast is a lovely book by Dorian Linsky called the ministry of truth, which is a biography of Orwell's 1984. And in it, he attributes a quote to Mussolini 
which is Mussolini's definition of totalitarianism, where he says everything within the state, nothing outside the state. And to me, I think that's probably the, the simplest and most pointed description that does away with a lot of what you're talking about. These associations people have, they think you immediately mean fascists or you immediately mean communists. That in effect, when one says totalitarian or authoritarian, people immediately paint an ideology onto it from some part of the political spectrum, when really, I suppose, what we're talking about is the way that entrenched interests take hold of and maintain power and consolidate and centralize that power for their own benefit. Uh, sure, I would, I, I would change that. Uh, uh, I would add a little bit to that because I don't think we're really talking about states um, anymore. I think uh, mm. when, we're, when we're talking about uh, the system that we all live under, um, mm. it, it's, it's supranational. Um, so I would alter that uh, quote a little bit. I've, I've actually spent a lot of time and written a lot um, uh, trying to get my head around it and articulate it a little bit um, uh, for people. Uh, uh, I think it, it's, uh, it's, it's hard for people to understand. I think a lot of folks, I've got a lot of readers, uh, I've got a lot of conservative readers, and they get very upset when I talk about capitalism at all and global capitalism. And, and, I, and I, I try to tell them, look, I, you know, I have absolutely nothing against people owning private property and you know, hiring other people to work and, and people working doing for business. You know, yeah. wages and doing business. People, you know, human beings have been doing this since the dawn of civilization. It's not what I'm talking about. I tell them, you know, I, I understand that this is not the type of capitalism that you want but it's the type of capitalism that we have. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, you know, we're, what we're talking about, it, it's, it's, it's not a conspiracy of individuals. It's, there's, it's not a, you know, a centralized uh, uh, force. We're talking about a decentralized, supranational, global network of uh, power, uh, economic power, but I, I my focus is ideological power, hmm. and the 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 points that I try to make sometimes. Uh, one point that I try to make, I, I use Saudi Arabia as an example. Uh, Saudi, you can look at Saudi Arabia and say, okay, well, Saudi Arabia is you know an authoritarian state. It's a theocracy. Um, you know, Islam is the uh, uh, is the official religion of the state, and so on. And 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 what I what I try to point out to them is. You know, look at the difference between a country like Saudi Arabia and a country like Iran, right? Saudi Arabia is not a problem for global capitalism, globocap, as I refer to it uh, uh, satirically often. You know, Saudi Arabia is not a problem. Iran is a problem, right? Um, the reason is that, that under global capitalism, global capitalism has no ideology, right? If you're playing ball with globocap, with the system at large, you can do whatever you want in your country. It's fine. You want to have a, a theocracy, an authoritarian theocracy? Absolutely fine. But when Globocap comes knocking at the door and needs something, you answer the door and you respond to global capitalism. You know, ultimately, mm -hmm. ultimately, that's what Saudi Arabia is playing ball with and what Iran is not playing ball with. Um, another example, just to just to maybe shine light on on the first example, 
is uh, religion, people, uh, people who are religious. Um, there are a lot of people who are religious in the sense that they believe whatever they believe and they wear whatever they wear around their necks and they go to church or temple or the mosque you know, on the days that they're supposed to and all of this, but they live their lives according to the rules of global capitalism not according to the rules of their religions. It's the people who attempt to actually live their lives according to the values of their religions that immediately run into conflict with global capitalism, <laughs> with the power system that we all live under. You know, it's, it's try, to go, try to go and actually live like Jesus. Yeah, and see how that see how that goes, you know, or or look at or look at you know religious fundamentalism, whether it's uh, uh, Islamic fundamentalism in the Middle East, Christian fundamentalism in the United States, and you immediately see the clash. Um, it's a long way of getting back to the point that I was going to make, which is basically global capitalism has no ideology. It's one of the mm -hmm. main, perhaps the main difference. In it, between this new emerging form of totalitarianism and the 20th century forms, which were absolutely ideological. Um, global capitalism has no ideology. It doesn't need an ideology. It has no external adversaries. It has no outside enemies, right? So what does it need an ideology for? It, its ideology has become, and there are scare quotes around this, folks, reality. <laughs> That's what its ideology is. And, 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 you know, if you look at the conflicts, at most of the conflicts that are taking place, definitely the conflicts that I'm experiencing and a lot of folks in the West are experiencing, they're, they're, not, they're not portrayed as political conflicts anymore. The, the names that people like uh, me get called are not political epithets anymore, right? We are, we are science deniers, we are uh, uh, anti-vaxxers. We are conspiracy theorists, right? We, we, we are people who basically do not accept reality. Scare quotes around that again, folks. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, what I've, described this, I've described this as pathologized totalitarianism. Hmm. Uh, Mike, it's one of the biggest differences uh, between this new emerging form of totalitarianism and, and 20th century forms. And if we look at that within the framework of dystopian trends, a dystopian idea, this question of what is real, what is true, and who has the right and ability to describe and determine reality this is, I suppose, where it's clear, as you say, we're not dealing with something that is governmental only, but more to do with, again, how is power acquired and kept? Um, coming back to your experience in Germany with this uh, trial, the Orwellian, one of the Orwellian terms that can be used, uh, although people often quote or misquote 1984 to try and apply it to all kinds of stuff. But the idea of thought crime itself, the, the idea that what you have in your mind, what you see when you look at the world is a legal offense. That in itself 
to me personally feels closer now than it did five years ago, 10 years ago. And obviously that's one of the things you're sharing today in that context where we have these terms, hate speech, hate crime, thought crime. And you described yourself earlier as a free speech absolutist. Where do we, where do we plant a flag where we say, if we're going to have a reality that isn't sewn up by one particular group, we have to be able to say things for ourselves, to describe things for ourselves and not have terms dictated to us. Where can we plant that flag? How, how do we square a world that we're told needs to be safer and more sensitive and more feeling and compassionate with a world where people in practical terms must be free to express themselves in order for one group not to take control of reality as it's described. Uh, well, this is this is where I'm just an old-fashioned uh, free speech uh, lefty, um, uh, which is uh, basically we you know we're we're grown-ups and the world is a messy place and um, and human beings are messy animals and uh, you know I I I don't want to live in a world and until recently most people uh, you know with me on the left liberals and you know leftists what have you. Uh, also didn't want to live in a world where we were you know, giving up uh, our, the freedom to express ourselves um, in the name of safety, uh, in the name of, uh, you know, of not offending people. Um, you know, back to the classic example that, that most that, you know, Americans use constantly, which was the, uh, I think it was the big uh, Nazi march in Skokie, Illinois, I forget. What uh, it was. The Illinois and, Nazis from the Blues <clears throat> Brothers. Yeah, I hate was, Illinois Nazis. It was it from the '60s, '50s, or '60s. I forget. Um, but you know, the the old ACLU came out at that time, and and you know, all the liberals and leftists, everybody came out, and so you got to let the Nazis march, uh, because when we start when we start resp- restricting the speech, even of people that we despise, <laughs> you know, it, when we start controlling the speech, you know, who's next? You know, once mm. once once you ban the speech of the Nazis in Illinois, then you know, guess what? The racists, you know, in Alabama and Mississippi are going to ban the speech of the civil rights workers um, who are trying to. You know, once you start down that road, uh, uh, it 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 only leads to censorship and totalitarian uh, totalitarianism and dystopia. Uh, so my answer is, you know, we, we need to be grown ups and we need to live with it. Um, you know, the, the way that I deal with uh, uh, Nazis, neo-Nazis and crypto-fascists and anti-Semites, um, I, I tell them very plainly when they write in, you know, to my Substack and what have you, <clears throat> I tell them very plainly, you know, I, I'm going to delete your comments and I'm going to ban you from my, <laughs> from my Substack, right? You know, I, I'm not the government, I'm not the state, I don't want to hear your crypto-fascist garbage, right? And everyone, all of us, all of us have the freedom to do that. Uh, we, and we can also choose to argue with them if we want. Um, you know, I'm sick of arguing with them, so I just ban them. Um, but the other way is to argue with them and, and demonstrate what you know, sick, <laughs> twisted souls they are. Um, this, is, this was understood and this was the, the basic position 
of, of liberalism and uh, certainly leftism for years and years and years. This, this new uh, uh, narrative that has developed that, that, that somehow we need to protect everyone in society from offensive speech and idiotic ideas and lies uh, you know, is, is really dangerous to me. Um, uh, no, we, we just need to, we need to counter lies with truth. Uh, we need to, you know, counter, you know, uh, uh, offensive speech with, uh, you know, with non-offensive speech. Uh, you know, the Brandeis it, argument, right? That yeah, the cure yeah, for bad speech is good speech. That's it. That's it. It's just the classic Brandeis argument. The example you gave of your your Substack and your moderation preferences is very, very interesting. Because it, you, you're, as you described, I think in you and I agree. Using the law, having a law that says there are limits on what people can say and what they can express, is not a good idea for a society. But for the community that you've built around your Substack, the people who read your work and comment on it, you don't want a comment thread polluted with people raving and being insulting and saying things that are horrible because it lowers the tone of the community. It, it is perhaps frustrating for you and it, it clouds where people are comfortable saying something that's direct or honest because someone else is jumping in and being a douchebag about it. Um, so you choose, in a sense, to restrict free speech within the confines of your community, but you are not the law. You are not the government. And so, in a sense, that's I, I find that tension to be very real for me also. There's certain things I really don't like hearing. I, I, I find certain words, certain attitudes to be ugly. They produce a, a, a visceral reaction in me. But at the same time, I... I can't get past the, the Chomsky argument when he was defending Holocaust deniers, which is if you will only defend the speech of people you agree with, you don't believe in free speech. Um, I, I, I'm not really sure how I'm feeling my way there, but just in a way, your feelings that you want to keep that stuff out of your system, but also are in favor of it being legal, at least in a, in an absolute sense in society in a way, someone who is arguing with you would point out, well, all we're saying is we want to be moderating the way you are, except we want to be doing it everywhere, not just on your Substack. Um, it's, it's a question I find very interesting because it's queasy. It, it, at some point, it's unpleasant to accept people saying some of these things and believing some of these things. And how do we, how do, we do that as a culture without becoming like a horrible comment thread filled with all sorts of ad hominem attacks and racism and so on. Yeah, well, for me, it's, it's, it's pretty easy. Um, uh, Mike, basically, there's, you know, there, there, there is the state, uh, you know, or the society that can pass regulations or, or not pass regulations on uh, what people can say and do this in the form of laws and, and, uh, and what have you. You know, I, I'm not the state. I'm, I'm, I'm a guy. You know, it's in for the for the in the same way, if I, you know, if I had a party, if I, uh, you know, invited people to a party in my apartment 
and a bunch of people showed up to the party, and one of them was, uh, you know, a neo-Nazi, and started ranting, you know, about the Jews in the middle of my party. You know, I, I would remove this person from my apartment. <laughs> they're not, they're not welcome in my, they're not welcome to come into my apartment and start ranting a, you know, a bunch of fascistic uh, stuff about the Jews. Uh, same would go for, you know, a racist. If somebody, you know, if I'm having a party and somebody shows up at my party and starts, you know, ranting about, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, whoever in some racist way, uh, I'm going to throw that person out of my apartment. They're not welcome here where I live. Mm. I'm not, I'm not the state. Yeah, we're, we're all, we all live in societies. We live in states, what have you, but we are, we, we are not, we don't function that the same in the same way the state does that, that neo-Nazi that I throw out of my party, he's welcome to go right down the street and go to a neo-Nazi party. And I will, I will go out and I will protest and I will defend his right to go to that neo-Nazi party and I will defend his right to publish his neo-Nazi garbage in whatever you know, neo-Nazi garbage publication wants to publish his stuff. I will absolutely defend their rights to do that. This doesn't mean I need to let them hang out in my apartment at my mm. party. And it's, it's really that... It's really that simple. I, you know, it's something I, I say it on my Substack. I say there are plenty of places on the internet for you to spew your anti-Semitic garbage. This is not one of them. <laughs> go, go and go and spew it in one of those places, and you know, it, I will absolutely defend your right to do that. I remember the first time I ever went to Berlin, and I saw. I have no idea if it's still there. But I saw on the side of a building a quote that I believe was attributed to Albert Einstein that said, when, this, when the people fear the state, you have tyranny. When the state fears the people, you have liberty. And to me, what you just said makes perfect sense. And in a way, what it brings up is something that ties back into a lot of these other trends we're observing culturally and politically which is when you have a society which is legally adversarial but individually people assert their own views in that way we kind of create a web right you assert no i am not going to accept this in my presence in my home and that person knows no that's not okay here and they go and they can they can go be an asshole among assholes but but here, not okay. And in a way, this encourages a type of social web because what it really is is the culture gets stronger by resisting. It's, it's almost like a, like a pathogen, right? The immune system of the body politic gets stronger by resisting these things as they circulate through it. But if you only have a state saying these things cannot be said, it, it puts it into a position where, because nobody ever says any of this stuff, People don't assert these things. We don't develop the the culture of people drawing these lines in a way that's maybe not always congenial, but at least individual and personal. And it's about how we relate to each other. It's not about what the rules are. I um I was going to ask you in that in that context as well what it what it means 
to be a dissident today? And in what ways it's possible? Are we in a situation of a kind of opportunity that the portal is closing on people who can be openly contrarian or or dissenting against what they see as the direction uh, the world is taking or, or laws are taking? Yeah, we're, we're absolutely in that state. This is the crackdown on, on dissent that I was uh, talking about. Mm. Um, and and uh, again, it is... It is, it, it, is, it is really a new form of totalitarianism that I'm, I've been working pretty hard to, to try to understand and uh, describe uh, because, again, it's, it's not about ideology. It's not the, you know, the 1950s in the United States where, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, we're the forces of freedom and, the, you know, the commies are, are, you know, are the enemy and, you know, there's, you know, the commies are everywhere and they're coming out of the woodwork and, and it was about ideology in that sense. Um, it's, this is a, a, a strange new form because, again, you know, global capitalism, which is really the, the ideology that we all uh, live under, is, is, is not an ideology. Yes. Uh, it's, there's nothing ideological about it, which is part of what makes it so powerful. It can, it can instrumentalize any ideology it wants one day, drop it the next, you know, pick up the opposing ideology, instrumentalize that the next. Um, people have seen this and have noted this over the past uh, few years, the way the official narrative uh, seems to change on a dime. Mm. All right. In in much the same way. Now, this is an analogy from 1984 that I've used over and over and over again. Um, it's just that classic scene uh, in the middle of the hate week celebration um, where they switch official enemies and <laughs> and the speaker on the platform, you know, doesn't miss a beat. He, he, his speech continues. And all that happens is uh, whoever it was, Eurasia becomes East Asia or vice versa. We've always or, been at war. <laughs> exactly. And it switches and it, and and in the and no one you know misses a beat in the audience and it simply switches. Um, you know, one day, one day, you know, the United States and everybody throughout the West is just absolutely hysterical about the return of fascism and the, the rise of the new, you know, fascism. And, you know, Donald Trump has an underground army of, you know, neo-Nazi racists that are going the to... ultra mega mega whatever. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That are going to, you know, overthrow the United States government, the Russian... I, I, in, in my earlier collections and, and essays, I, I used to call them the Putin Nazis. Right. So for years, for years, all during the Trump administration, just mass hysteria about, oh, it's the, the Nazis are coming. The, you know, the, 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 it's the return of fascism. Trump is Hitler and so on. And then, boom, on a dime on a dime suddenly, well, you know, the neo-Nazis in the Ukraine, it's not, you know, it's complicated. They're not really such, you know, neo-Nazis and, you know, every, and the ability of... And what does Nazi mean anyway? Yeah, yeah exactly, you know, and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> to have been a Nazi, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it, but people had, you know, they were faced with difficult choices, you know, as whether to be a Nazi or not be. And suddenly, you know, and suddenly the, the, the same people who were just red-faced hysteric.
hysterical, just wide-eyed hysterical for four years about the return of fascism are now apologizing for you know blatant neo-nazis you know and, 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 and screaming about not sending enough money and weapons to people who exactly, wear swastikas exactly <laughs> we we just can't you know you need to send more weapons to the nazis and and when you look at this when you track it you know and you ask how can that happen how can how can how can people just turn on a dime like that and i really think the analogy from 1984 is absolutely appropriate um, the point that I tr- that, that I try to make is is th- th- this is what I mean when I say that global capitalism does not have an ideology, right? Its ideology is quote unquote reality, and it dictates what reality is, and it dictates it from day to day, right? And the the question is not what do you believe. The question is, are you in conformance? Are you in conformity with the official narrative, whatever it happens to be today? Mm. And what it happens to be today may be the diametrical opposite of what it was tomorrow. But that does not matter because we're not, it's, it's not an ideological argument. It's a question of, are you in conformity with the official narrative? There was a, a very powerful, at least in my view, powerful example of this not so long ago with the uh, brouhaha at the Canadian Parliament uh, where they had a, um, they welcomed Zelensky from Ukraine and were having a kind of uh, pep rally and uh, and the speaker welcomed a, I think he was 96, maybe 98 years old chap named Yaroslav Hunka, who uh, who stood up and gave a wave and took a bow. And he was lauded as having fought against the Soviets, i.e. the Russians, in the Second World War and was a true Canadian hero from originally from Ukraine. Of course, anyone with a sense of history knows that if you were in Ukraine and you were fighting against the Russians, <laughs> you were fighting for <laughs> the Axis. Um and so, of course, it then transpired that Hunka, you you probably know all this anyway, but for the benefit of our listeners, um, that it transpired that Hunka had his own blog where he was sharing photographs of his time in the Galicia SS regiment in the U- in Ukraine during the Second World War. It was the happiest time of his life, and he was basically fighting for the Nazis and loving it. Um, and then, of course, the so-called alternative alternative media got hold of this, put it out there. Mainstream media had to then pick it up and talk about it. Filters through the process. Speaker of the House resigns. Prime Minister apologizes. And then Politico publish an article where they basically say, like we were joking, they actually wrote an article about, well, well, what, what does it mean to be a Nazi really anyway? He, he, a lot of people had, like you said, they had to make these difficult choices and this pivoting the the word that I love, I learned it from a, from a documentary a few years ago, and it's increasingly apt is impretzelment. The, the contort It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Just the contortions that people go through to suddenly face 180 degrees away from where they were 24 hours earlier, as if it's a completely seamless and intuitive move. And for me, maybe because I fancy myself as rational, maybe because I'm stubborn, or maybe because I'm seeing something that 
they're telling me isn't there. It's, it's like a violence against my sense of reality. And this to me is pure dystopia. This is pure Orwell. The idea, the, the nightmarish feeling of what happens when truth disappears, which is to me, the hallmark of dystopia. And you wrote a dystopian novel. I hope we can quickly talk about that. Maybe with that as our segue, we can talk about imagining a dystopian world and, and also the effects that these totalitarian influences, this war on reality and truth, where is the place for imagination and creativity when this reality becomes this amorphous blob that's molded constantly by people uh, who are telling you what's true rather than it being a consensus reality that we share? Sure. Um, you know, I, 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 I should note um, you were talking about the publishing uh, uh, business uh, earlier, um, and a lot of people don't understand. Uh, a lot of people don't understand how the publishing business works. Uh, my novel, Zone Twenty Three, you know, five hundred page satirical dystopian uh, novel, uh, which I published myself. Um, there is absolutely no way that a novel like this. Uh, uh, could be published by uh, any of the legitimate, uh, you know, any of the so-called legitimate, respectable Air publishers. Quotes legitimate. Yeah, uh, publishers these days. So you know, a lot of people don't understand. There are there are, you know there are like five big uh, publishing uh, houses in the English language world, and they own all the various imprints and what have you. Um, and you know, a novel like mine would, you know, it it, it, it would spend about you know twenty minutes with the sensitivity editors uh, that existed at all the publishing houses now before it would get you know, chucked I I immediately. Um, uh, the, 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 I, I joke, I, I've joked a lot with people. Uh, I joked during the, the COVID years. Um, I apologized, I, you know, I, I said, look, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I published the novel in 2017. I said, I, I, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize they were going to use this as a blueprint uh, so soon. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the fundamental premise of the novel, there's, there's a, obviously 500 pages, there's a lot in there. Um, but the fundamental premise of the novel, you know, at, at this point, it's at some point in the distant future, you know, which we don't really even know when it is. The not too distant future. Well, no, it's the, you know, supposedly pretty distant future, but nobody's really sure, you know, what time it is. Um, uh, society, it's, it's a completely corporate controlled society, a post-apocalyptic or a post-catastrophic uh, society that has been rebuilt after, you know, a, a total social collapse. And it's a corporate controlled society. And the society is uh, divided into three classes uh, of people. Um, there are the, uh, the variant positive normals, uh, the, the clears, and the antisocials. And uh, the, way this, the way this works is, at some point uh, uh, in this dystopian future, it was discovered that uh, all forms of aggression and violence uh, and aggressive behavior were all due to a defect in the uh, genetic structure of humanity. Right? So everyone, you know, when every human being has this defect. Right? And think about that for a minute. It's a defect. 
in the genetic structure of humanity. So in order to correct this defect, uh, you know, uh, measures had, had to be taken. Um, the, the clear generation, they're the younger generation, um, they've been genetically modified uh, to, to correct this defect. Um, the variant positive normals, um, they're the older generation. Um, they, can't, they couldn't be genetically modified because they were already born. So they are heavily medicated. There's a lot of medication that will help, you know, that will keep, that will, that will uh, keep them from having aggressive thoughts and hostile thoughts and so on. And the antisocials, of course, are, uh, are you know, uh, medication resistant. You know, they don't respond to the medication or they won't take it. And so they all live in gigantic quarantine zones that are, that are walled in. And uh, so they're like, you know, uh, small cities that are completely walled in. And they live in these quarantine zones. Like um, favelas or ghettos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, Gaza, uh, for example. Um, uh, the, that's where they live. And that's the way society has been divided. So it's a completely pathologized society um, mm. and and the logic the logic of the control system in the society is not a political logic at all it's a completely pathological logic and you know that's kind of what we're moving towards isn't it yes uh, it often feels although this sounds egotistical to say it often feels that common sense can be a superpower sometimes. And that's not comforting. <laughs> I suppose this is where a world like that, a world that's controlled and laid out and people are led to understand themselves in a certain way based on what the powerful have laid out, Where one of the ways that touches me in terms of our conversation today is humor is very anarchic because it's unpredictable and it seems to most of the time be inherently anti-establishment or anti-power. And imagination also is very liberating. It's, it's something that runs free when it's at its best and creativity in a sense, even if the creativity is not of something overtly funny or intentionally funny, it feels to me like creativity flows in the same meadow as imagination and, and humor. There's something unpredictable, uh, not charted. It's not a framework. It's something that kind of happens that flows through a person. And each of us interprets this flow differently, which is why Writers often come up with the same ideas or the same premise, but one of them will be writing a horror novel and one of them will be writing a futuristic sci-fi. But really, they're kind of channeling the same thing. It's almost as if something is moving through them and each of us puts our lens on it. Um, so this, like you said, this emphasis on controlling reality feels like one of the side effects, I, I wouldn't speak to whether it's an intention or not, but feels like one of the side effects is a, a control of creativity, a control of humor, a control of imagination, those things that are inherently, I would argue, inherently human, 
um, natural to us, that kind of bubble up from inside, meet this downward pressure, this outer pressure of, well, we can't say that, we can't do that, we can't believe that, oh, it's not like that. It is, in a sense, censorship, but beyond someone just sending you a notice because you sent the wrong tweet. It's internal. It meets us where we are, not after we take action. Am I off base there? Do you see it differently? or No, that's you, you were talking about the essence of totalitarianism before, and... Um, the way that the way that I understand the essence of totalitarianism and 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 where it where it differs from you know fascism authoritarianism whatever other terms you want to put on it um, totalitarianism is is an attempt to establish complete control and this you know ultimately it's impossible of course this can never be done but nonetheless this is the intent and the energy of totalitarianism it doesn't simply want to control what you do it wants to control what you think what you believe what you're capable of thinking what you're capable of imagining um it's it's that it, it that is the the impulse that is the 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 intent um you know just to get to get back to the difference between my case, I mean, somebody uh, like me or many other, you know, more important people than me, Julian Assange, for example, other people who are being made examples of, the mm. the the point is not really what they're doing to us. The we are, we are. I, I wrote this in one of my columns. I said, you know, the the Globo Cap is sending uh, out a message. And, you know, the message isn't meant for me and for people like me. You know, we're just the, the material. We're just the, the material that the message is conveyed on. The message is meant for you. Um, it, and that's, that's why we're being made examples of. The point of it is, here, folks, just regular folks out there, you know, look what we're doing to this guy because he said something that was, you know, he because he committed a thought crime. You know, look what we're doing to him. Do you want us to do that to you? <laughs> you know, if you don't, maybe think twice before you write that next tweet. You know, think twice before you, you know, put this into your novel. You know, think 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 twice before you, you know, write that line in your poem you know, before you finish that painting in the way that you just envisioned. Uh, think about what's going to happen to you. And remember when we made examples of these people, all of this, all of this is, is, is directed toward creating what the Nazis called Gleichschaltung, synchronizing total ideological synchronization of society. Hmm. Right, this is the this is the this is the the classic essence of totalitarianism. As I said, it's impossible, uh, but nonetheless, every totalitarian system strives toward this. Yeah, I've I've also, you know, a lot of people started reading uh, my essays back in 2020. I wrote an essay called "The Covidian Cult," and in that essay, I made the point that. If you want to understand totalitarianism, you can understand it as, as a, a cult writ large on a societal scale. 
and vice versa. If you look at the operations of cults, you're basically looking at the mentality, at the modus operandi of a totalitarian system in a microcosm. Mm -hmm. um, this, this, this desire, this attempt to control every last aspect of the social body, whether it's a small cult or whether it's an entire society or whether it's the entire planet. Um, I believe this is really the essence of totalitarianism. For some reason, it makes me think of trajectories that, as we said earlier, um, the word, at least from what I understand from you, you're not talking about a cabal. You're not talking about a group of people with a definite intention and a central agenda who are kind of conspiring to create an outcome. It's, it's in a way more worrying than that because it's something that seems almost an emergent phenomenon, right? It's something that's happening. It's a way we're all moving. And when I think of that, I wonder about whether this is a byproduct or a, a trend that comes from really the machine age, the, the advent of industry as we understand it in a modern sense, the standardization that's necessary for mass production, for doing things at the grand scale, that perhaps as more and more of us are on the planet, the individual disappears into this mass and the rules begin to change. What works for a mass doesn't work for an individual and vice versa that a hundred thousand people on the planet can live in a way that maybe 10 billion people can't live on the planet. And so a kind of emergent force that maybe manifests in different ways, perhaps it's doesn't have to be a totalitarian system, but it, comes with that energy of pushing us in a certain direction where each of us perhaps can't do things the way we totally would like because of all the people we're rubbing up against all the time. That perhaps there's some impetus behind this that isn't merely political. As you say, it's not ideological. It's something that is happening, but it's not necessarily that someone somewhere is doing it. I find that an not attractive, but a kind of compelling way of looking at it. And I also find it quite worrying because where, where does resistance to that direction come from? I'm not resisting against anyone. How, how do I live that challenge? Yeah, I see it. I see it a little bit differently and I'll, I'll, I'll get into some of the more uh, philosophical stuff that, um, that I get into often. Um, uh, it's it's the re the reason that I insist on uh, calling the system that we live under and and no it's not a cabal it's not a small group of people you could take you know yes of course there are people conspiring at the top there are always people conspiring at the top um, they're part of a system and they're servants of a system and it's the system that I'm focusing on and tracking you could replace all of those people at the top with other people at the top tomorrow and the system would continue to evolve exactly as it is evolving. The system that we're talking about um, is, is global capitalism. If you go back to the 20th century and you, and you go back to those totalitarian movements um, uh, and systems in the 20th century, 
Look at the 20th century, what was happening. Capitalism had been around for a few hundred years. It was doing really well. It was spreading across the planet. And what, what does capitalism do ideologically? What does, it do, what does it do when it takes over a society? Well, the first societies that it took over were despotic societies. All right? They were ruled by aristocracies, they were ruled by the church, they were ruled by kings and the nobles and what have you. And capitalism came in. And for folks that have a problem with this, then switch words. Democracy. Call it democracy. <laughs> because that's what it did. Capitalism came in and it basically said, oh no, you know what? The king and the church and the aristocracies and the nobles and all them, they don't get to establish values anymore. Right? Values from now on are going to be established by the marketplace. Right? Power, ideological power is not going to flow from the church and the, you know, the monarchies. It is going to flow from the marketplace. What capitalism does ideologically is it goes into a society and it decodes that society of its despotic values. Right? Which is great, which is wonderful. I'm in favor, you know, yeah, racism is, is a despotic value. You know, all forms of bigotry are despotic values. Um, I'm in favor of, of decoding all of those. Great. Capitalism basically gave us the democracy that we all enjoy. And it did that by decoding these societies of, of their despotic values and, 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 Resituating value production in the market. Right? Capitalism has no values. It has one value, and that's exchange value. Right? It's that's that's where value comes from. You know, people complain, you know, now it's like everything comes down to money. Yes, it does. It comes, it comes down to money uh, because that's the value that the market dictates. Whatever, whatever a commodity is worth today is what it's worth. It's not worth what the church says it's worth. It's not worth what the king says it's worth. It's worth what the market says it's worth. So capitalism was doing that in the 20th century, and it was spreading around the world. And two reactionary forces rose up against it. And one of them was you know, uh, fascism, and the other one was communism. Yeah, and I'm sorry to all my lefty friends. I know, just like, just like my conservative friends, it wasn't real. It, this isn't real capitalism, you know. And and you don't know how long I've heard all my lefty friends say it wasn't real communism. That's Whatever, right. The reason it failed was because we didn't do it hard enough. Yeah, exactly. Whatever you want to call it, these two reactionary forces, they rose up, and they said, you know what? We don't want global capitalism to turn the entire planet into a marketplace. We want to hold on to our values. We want to hold on to our racist, fascist values. We want to hold on to our social values, our socialist values. Over here. We want to hold on to, our, to the values that we determine, that we dictate as people, not values that are established by the marketplace. And by these the way, can two, I just jump in? I, I, sorry, well, I, I let, let me Let I, me just finish sorry. this so you okay. get the whole picture. These two reactionary forces rose up and they attempted to stop the forward march of global capitalism and they failed. Mm. And they failed. And global capitalism won. And where we are and where we're going, this is again when I say global capitalism has no ideology. This is what I'm talking about. When, when you know, when, when you turn over 
when you turn over the production of value, the production of reality to global capitalism, all global capitalism knows how to do is wipe away despotic values and render basically everything and everyone a commodity, hmm. right? And that's, that's what it is doing. How do you resist that? We're seeing that resistance, Mike. And again, most of it is reactionary resistance. Hmm. And when I say reactionary, I'm not using that word as a pejorative. I'm simply describing this is, this is an older system of value that is rising up and trying to stop the advance of a new system of value or non-value. And I'm sorry, I, I didn't let you get in. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I apologize for the interruption. It was only when I, I love the way you have put that together. And all I was going to kind of offer up as an observation was obviously when we're speaking about fascism and communism rising up at that particular time in that context, within the framework you're using, there's a certain assumption of sincerity, you know, that the Bolsheviks really believed what they were doing or that the Nazis really believed. And I, to me, I don't know if I take them uh, in that way because maybe I'm, I mean, not that I'm any more cynical about the will to power than you are, but just that these are, there's a reluctance among people to lose what they have, especially if the thing that someone tells them they're going to get, they don't think is as good as what's going to replace it. And maybe in that sense, when that inner dissatisfaction bubbles up, someone smart enough and cynical enough to come along and tell people a story about how they can keep what they have and have the satisfaction of fighting against something that's worse. Um, and so when you're talking about this older value system resisting, in a way, it falls within the the linguistic framework that's used by people in power now, which is that terrorists fight, quote, our way of life. You know, it's, it's terrorism, it's theocracy, it's bigots, it's right-wingers, it's uh, people who are deplorable or illiterate that are against, quote, progress. And... In a way, that's that goes back to what I was saying. Are we on? Are we strapped to a rocket that's just moving, and all we're doing really is observing dynamics as they change, but not really with the ability to change it? Because this is how societies rise and fall, how they develop, how they move. Is dystopia or authoritarianism, in a sense? an end result of a trajectory that we're on, or is it something in which we have more choices, individuals, and maybe more of an ability to shape the outcome? Um, well, I'll get a little, uh, I'll get a little spiritual with you um, because uh, what, what I often say when I get to this point in conversations is that I have this uh, crazy faith in people um, I think the 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 blurb uh, uh, of my novel talks about uh, the uh, the uh, 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 indestructible anarchic spirit 
of uh, human beings, um, and I believe in that, and that's and that's my faith. I I think there are phases. I think there are uh, phases that we go through um, historically. Um, I don't think there's an end point. I I don't think you know. I don't think anything ends in dystopia. I don't think anything ends in totalitarianism. Um, it may get there, and stay there for a while. Uh, but I don't think it is in our nature as beings to stay there. I, I believe that that, that anarchic spirit uh, that is in us uh, will not tolerate it and will uh, fight back against it or find a way to uh, uh, throw a monkey wrench into the works of it. Um, I don't have, I, I, I don't know how to do that other than uh, how I know to do it today. Um, for example, uh, today people ask me, you know, uh, uh, people say to me all the time, Jesus, you know, CJ, you're so depressing. You know, is there a, do you have any, do you have any hope for us? Do you have anything to suggest and what have you? And, and what I usually say is, is you know, it, yeah, I think the first step where we are right now the first step is to recognize what this is. Um, it's I, I I think a lot of us, uh, you know, to quote an old French philosopher, um, are we're struggling with dream figures, um, and and the blows are falling on mortal faces. Um, I think most of us haven't really gotten our heads around the world that we're in and the way power is structured. Um, I think most most folks are are still, and it's natural. It's not because people are stupid. It's it's natural. Most folks, you know, we were we we, we grew up, we were raised and conditioned to see the world in terms of you know competing nation states and you know geopolitical struggles and what have you. Um, so this this picture that I'm painting is is strange and it's difficult uh, to get our heads around. But it is much more Orwellian. Um, and I, I think the, f the first step in, in addressing it, um, I don't know if, if it's something that can be defeated or if it's something that is simply you know, resisted and, and corrupted and, uh, uh, and changed. Um, the first step is, is to try to see what it is, what it actually is um, that, that we're struggling with. Um, I... I I told you I was going to get a little spiritual on you, and I will. Um, the, the, the way that I understand history and it's the way that I understand art and the creativity that you were talking about and everything else, forms come into being, right? And, and political power structures are forms like any other form. Uh, forms come into being, they evolve, they develop, they do that in conflict and contrast with other forms. And... And, and dominant forms, eventually, they reach their full expression, right? And by the time they reach their full expression, the seeds of their destruction are already contained within that full expression. Mm. I, think, I, think it is, I think it is part of the job of artists, and it's, some, it's the role of artists and what we've always done. We... We are the ones, we are among the ones who plant those seeds of destruction as a form is evolving towards its full dominant expression. 
I don't know if, if that's clear, if people can get their heads around that. It's not the same as defeating an opponent or stopping something as much as it is weaving the destruction into the creative process. Because the creative process, of course, includes the destruction, any form. Mm. Look, at, look, at, look at nature, look at plants, what have you. Once a, you know, once a form achieves its full expression, what happens? It dissolves, it dies, so that something else can be born. And the something else, the something else that is born is already in the thing that dies. So maybe it's not up to us to stop the thing as much as it is to plant those seeds that can then take root and grow when the time is right. And at least to be active in our awareness and our observation of ourselves within that process and of the process. Yes. I very much appreciate what you say. And when you were saying it, what immediately came to mind is that over the course of the year, the hottest part of the year happens after the longest day. So by the time you have the the summer solstice, the days are getting shorter. The, the sun is in retreat, so to speak. But the heat builds to a climax after that. And that's how it feels to me, that there's this cyclical uh, nature. And in a way, that's also my feeling and what I was much less eloquently and more indelicately than you fumbling my way towards. Um, I, I really think that's a, a strong sense of, uh, of reality of how things flow and shape and fall away. And, uh, it's good because fighting is a very tight, tense, almost aggressive and violent, reaction and maybe reaction itself is part of our issue that you know letting it letting it flow and watching what's going on is perhaps healthier than being tense and feeling like I'm fighting something all the time no Which, fighting uh, fighting has its place too <laughs> bringing us back to the beginning of the conversation sure <laughs> and um yeah, with that case as well, I hope um, I hope that the process of forcing the German authorities to face you in court and buttress their own ridiculous argument contains the seeds of its own destruction, as you've said. Yeah, I think it's it's I've I've said this before since I got all spiritual. You know the the, the you know the way I understand what I'm doing here is, you know, I come from the theater, uh, Mike, and, and, and in, a, in a sense, I see, you know, this, this whole ride as a, as a big uh, theater production. Hmm. And, you know, I've been, I, you know, I'm an actor who's been cast in a role, you know, and my role is me, <laughs> right? So, so this, is, this is the scene that I've been handed to play, and so I'm going to try to play it uh, you know the best uh, way that I that I can um, for the audience of you know other human beings and for the gods and for the record and for mm. 
whatever. Um, it's uh, in a sense it, it it in a sense the outcome uh, doesn't matter as much to me as as doing what I think the scene calls for. So yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. And on that journey, how can people who are listening now? find you what's next for you what are you working on other than obviously defending yourself in court against ludicrous allegations i've been trying to i've been trying to work on uh, my second novel the 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 zone 23 uh was always intended to be the first of a trilogy of uh, these dystopian novels and i've started the second one and every time I, I i get going on it something else happens and so this court case has come along and disrupted me again, uh, but that's what I'm working on. And aside from that, um, it's my columns I put out. Uh, I, I try to put out at least a couple of columns a month, or at least one a month. Um, and they're on my Substack, or they're on the Consent Factory blog, and in various other disreputable, uh, unreliable publications. Um, I'm easy to find. People can just plug my name into a search engine, and and you'll find my Substack and 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 other things about me. So easy to find. CJ, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time uh, and sharing this very, um, not just broad, but deep uh, discussion that we've had. It's uh, It's been wonderful for me. I hope it's been valuable for you as well. Thanks. It, it's been a pleasure, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Well, that wraps things up for this episode of 1984 Today. I'm grateful to our guest, CJ Hopkins, for being so generous with his time, and of course, to you for listening. Following the thread of dystopia through the labyrinth of reason can be a daunting task, but I hope you'll agree that it's worthwhile. If you value what we do here, please check the show notes for ways to support this podcast. Until we meet again, keep the fire burning. We'll be back with more fuel next time. Goodbye.